Well, good morning, and let me add my welcome onto Crawford's. I said, my name's Craig, and I serve as minister in training here at St. Peter's and also at Charleston Community Church. And let me add you especially a warm welcome if you perhaps are new to St. Peter's or looking into the claims of Jesus Christ. Well, as Crawford mentioned earlier, we are going to be looking at that passage he read for us from Exodus. So if you have your Bible, please do keep that open. If you're using your computer, go on Bible Gateway or another website and get that passage uh, up. That'll be really helpful for us this morning as we look at it together. Now, in our introduction to our reading, we were reminded, weren't we, that God's people have been slaves in Egypt. About 400 years they've been in Egypt for they have witnessed genocide of their own children. But God promised that he would come. He heard their cry, and he would rescue them. And so came the the ten plagues, the ten blows, and that final knockout blow from the, the Passover. And eventually Pharaoh let God's people go. So in our passage today, we find about a million people, the entire slave labor force of Egypt, marching out so that they, they can go and worship the Lord. Go and worship Yahweh. As I go through our passage for us this morning, I'm going to try to refer to the Lord as Yahweh, because that's what he said his name was back in Exodus chapter 3. But before we carry on, let me pray again and ask God for his help. Let's pray together. Our great God and Father, we rejoice that again we can worship you this Sunday. Thank you for the the freedom that we have to do so. May you speak to us, we ask, by your spirit as we look together at your word. May you incline our hearts to your word, not to anything this world has to offer us. Open our eyes, we ask, to see truly wonderful, magnificent, beautiful things in your word. Unite our hearts in reverent fear of you and satisfy our hearts in your steadfast love. Show us Christ today, we ask, and so raise our affections to him. And it's in his name we pray. Amen. When I was uh, at school, we used to have these big posters on the wall in the corridors at school. Uh, a big burger bun, got your top bits with a you know, seeds on top and the bottom bit there. And in between these two sides of this roll, there was this great big juicy burger. There was a spaghetti bolognese. There was a curry in there. There was a roast dinner in there. And to be honest, I thought that is a pretty mean sandwich. But underneath was the caption, you are what you eat. Now, clearly the, the healthy eating message was a, was a little bit lost on me in that. But there's a bigger problem with the poster, isn't it? That's not true, is it, that slogan? A better slogan would have been, you are what you do. See, who, who we are is reflected in what we do. And we see this clearly in the book of Exodus as God is revealing himself As I mentioned earlier, God revealed his name back in chapter 3. I am who I am. I will be what I will be, Yahweh. And then it's as if in the rest of the book, Yahweh is demonstrating and explaining who he is, what his name means, 
by what he does. God's deeds define his character. And look at verse 4 of chapter 14 in your Bible. This whole event that we, that we read, that we're going to look at, this whole event is so that the people will know who the Lord is, who Yahweh is. Do you see that in that verse there for us? They will know that I am Yahweh. And what I want us to see this morning is that we worship this same God. This event is given to us to teach us that in the most difficult times of life, in the times when we are most tempted to doubt God, this passage will teach us that we can trust him because he will always fight to save us. Two points for us this morning. Doubting God in the face of danger and trusting God in the face of his deliverance. Let's think about that first point, doubting God in the face of danger. Picture the scene, you're one of these Israelites here who has only ever known oppression in Egypt. It's what you grew up in, and a generation before, a generation before, and you've seen loved ones die of exhaustion, or perhaps crushed in a construction accident, or perhaps in that genocide you read about in the start of the book. And yet in that, you have held fast to the stories of the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. The God who saved his people from famine by bringing them to Egypt. And finally, you've, you've seen God, you were, the God you worship, come and obliterate the Egyptians. Smashing them so hard, it's as if creation itself began to undo itself. You remember so vividly that great knockout blow against Pharaoh. And I'm saying you're all free to go, free to walk out of Egypt, to worship Yahweh. And for the first time in your life, you are free. Perhaps you strut out of Egypt with a a newfound stride. And not only did Yahweh save you, he's also there to lead you as well. Then comes a surprise. I wonder if you noticed it. Go back to our first verse you read, verse 17 of chapter 13. We see here, God doesn't lead the people you would expect them to go. The people were to head to Canaan in the north, and yet there they are heading south. Now notice why. God said, if they face war, they might change their minds and return to Egypt. From the perspective of, of the Jewish people, this where the heading makes no sense at all. We've seen our reading from the perspective of Pharaoh and the Egyptians, it makes no sense at all. And yet, God knows better. If they'd gone that, that short route, the one that to us makes most sense, they would have encountered the Philistines. A tough, militarized people. And if the Israelites met them at this stage in their life, well, it'd be carnage. They aren't yet ready for war. Yes, they might have some weapons, but in their history as a nation and not just a family, they've never fired a shot in anger. 
See, Yahweh knew that if the Jewish people faced that nation at this stage in their life, it'd be terrible. They'd change their minds, they'd turn back. God knows best. Just on a side note, I wonder if you noticed that small detail in verse 19 as well, the sort of odd comment to us about Joseph's bones. How reminds that God's faithful, isn't he? A promise was made, a promise has been kept. Joseph's bones will go and rest in God's land. Meanwhile, as they are marching out, traveling along that road, Pharaoh, back in Egypt, he comes to his senses. He's realized after the shock of the Passover that he's just released his entire workforce. And so the most powerful man in the world at the time summons the most powerful army in the world at the time to go after God's people. And Pharaoh takes 600 of his, of his best chariots, along with some other chariots, it says. Today, this would be like 600 Challenger 2 battle tanks and a few scimitar tanks chucked in as well, roaring through the desert to identify and destroy and defeat the helpless enemy. An arsenal so fast, so strong, that no other army at the time would stand a chance against it, let alone this bunch of freed slaves. See, and here's the scene we find the Israelites in. The Israelites, they are camped by the sea. They have this immovable object in front of them. And on the other side, the seemingly unstoppable force of the Egyptian army roaring down upon them. And who's the one who has brought them to this place? Well, it's Yahweh. It's the Lord. And how do the Israelites feel as they see this immovable sea on one side and seemingly unstoppable army behind them? Look at verse 10 of chapter 14. As Pharaoh approached, the Israelites looked up, and there were the Egyptians marching after them. They were terrified and cried out to Yahweh. They said to Moses, Was it because there were no graves in Egypt that you brought us to the desert to die? What have you done to us by bringing us out of Egypt? Didn't we say to you in Egypt, leave us alone, let us serve the Egyptians? It would have been better for us to serve the Egyptians than to die in a desert. Where has all their confidence gone? Where has that stride gone that they had coming out of Egypt? Remember, God's still with them. He's right there beside them. But their eyes are so focused on the danger in front of them that they seem to forget that he is there and forget the rescue that he just did for them. And so they complain to Moses and um, and Moses, he's, he, he's, he's unique in one sense. He's God's special representative. So to complain to Moses is to complain to God. And we read as, as they did so, they seem to be wearing some, some rose-tinted spectacles. There is no way, is there, that life was better for them in Egypt. See, Yahweh, he's, he's led them out. He's led them to this place. They've been, they've been obedient to him. And they're in trouble. And they don't understand what's going on. They don't understand why God would allow this. 
They come to face to face with danger and they are so filled with fear and doubt that they've forgotten Yahweh. They're doubting in Yahweh. No wonder, does that sound familiar to your experience of life? If it doesn't, then I'm sure in time in your life it will. See, if, if you follow Jesus, there are situations which will be hard, that will be painful, that will be difficult, situations where you have no control over them. And the fact that I'm standing here in this empty church building speaking to you on a camera, well, that's, that shows that, doesn't it? This pandemic, it's been hard, it's been painful. We have had no control over things. Why, God? Why have you made me go through all this? And the thing is, I know for many of us, this pandemic, although difficult, has by no means been the hardest thing that the Lord has brought you into. And for many more of us, this pandemic will be by no means the hardest thing that the Lord will bring us into in the future either. Harder things for many of us, I'm sure, will come in our lives. And with these times, the potential to fear the potential to doubt. And when those times come, we will ask one question. Andy and myself and, and Rachel down in Charleston, we were speaking at Strathclyde CU Events Week this week, and the same question day after day after day. Why? Why have you done this, God? Why have you allowed this to happen? Why did my mother have to get that cancer diagnosis? Why did I have to to lose my job? Why does my child have to get bullied at school? Why do I have to think so many dark things that it, it drives me to despair? Or perhaps you're watching and you're a new Christian and your, your family and friends have, have started to turn on you, to mock you, to ignore you. Why have you let this happen? Don't you care about me? But the thing is, we can't stay there at that why, because if we do, we can begin to think like the Israelites do here. And those rose-tinted glasses can come on far too quickly, and we can look back and be tempted to think, not perhaps life was better before a new God. Or because our eyes can be filled with fear and doubt of what lies ahead of us and we doubt God's goodness. Think again about our passage. God hasn't led the Israelites here down to uh, the sea with the Egyptian army behind them and suddenly gone, oh no, I've made a mistake. My map was upside down. We should have gone left, north instead of gone right down to south. No, he is in control. He knows what is best. Even when all we see is danger and hardship. And this is true of the Christian life, isn't it? Jesus doesn't say, come and follow me and life will all be hunky-dory. No, he says, come and die. Come follow me, pick up your cross, join with me in suffering. 
bit of suffering that is never pointless. No matter how small, no matter how great, a suffering that is never pointless. To answer the question of those students at Strathclyde University was usually, I don't know. And that's the answer to our question here. I don't know why we get put in situations like this in verse 4, chapter 14. Not that we're stuck between a sea and an army, but put in situations where we just don't know what's going on, why the Lord has brought us here. What I do know is that in those situations, God wants us to trust him in our suffering, trust him in our doubt, so that he may get the glory. What does that look like? What it simply looks like at times when someone says to you, how can you believe in God when that happens to you? And you say, how can I not believe in God? See, we may hear that, that in times of suffering, God wants us to trust in him so that he gets glory. And that might just sound horribly cruel to our ears. Why should I suffer in misery while God gets the glory? I wonder if that's what you're thinking. Or think of it like this. When we think of God, God is not just a larger version of me, a larger version of you. See, if I was to seek my glory, I would be a complete megalomaniac. Or in Charleston speak, I'd just be a total bam. And to be honest, at, t- at times I am one. If you saw me seeking my own glory time after time after time, you'd be like, what is he on about? Life isn't about you, Craig. And you would be totally right, wouldn't you? See, if I go about life just seeking my glory, then not only would that be wrong, it would also be evil as well, because I'm just a, I'm just a sinner. I am a finite sinner. I am not the center of the universe. But God... Yahweh. He isn't like a bigger version of us, though, is he? God is so much greatness. God is God is spirit, infinite, eternal, unchangeable in, in his being. He is goodness, justice, power, holiness, and truth. He is the center of the universe. All things are made by him, through him, for him. It's only good and right to make sense, doesn't it, that all glory goes to him. But the thing is that when God seeks his glory, we are the ones who benefit from that. See, God seeks his glory, and he does so by saving sinners like me, sinners like you, sinners who don't deserve to be saved. When God seeks his glory, he does so by serving people like me, people like you, people who don't deserve to be served. See, like us, the Israelites, they they aren't squeaky clean people, are they? They aren't perfectly holy people. It's not been that long since the Passover, and yet here they are, big moaners, ungrateful sinners. People who quickly forget what God has done for them and that God is there with them. And at times that just is so uncomfortable to hear. 
Because at times I'm sure that's just like me, just like you. See, when God leads us into difficult times, when we are filled with fear and doubt God's goodness, what we need to do is not focus on what causes us to doubt, but instead to look to Yahweh. Look to him in his word and see how he has fought to save us. And that's what the people go on to do. They begin to trust God in the face of his deliverance. That's our second point, trusting God in the face of his deliverance. The people are looking at the danger, looming, doubting God, and look at what Moses says to them in verse 13 of chapter 14. Do not be afraid. Fear not. Why? Comes the next verse, ultimately, Yahweh will fight for you. You need only to be still. Do not be afraid. Watch him act. Put your trust in him. That's what Moses is saying to them. And so Yahweh tells Moses, doesn't he, to, to lift up his staff, to stretch out his hand. And notice in verse 19, God moves to surround his people, to protect them from the danger behind them. And this mighty wind comes and it divides the sea so that the Israelites can march through. My kids have been watching um, uh, The Prince of Egypt on Netflix, an, an adaptation cartoon film based on the story in the first half of Exodus. And I love this scene from that film. The Israelites, they are, they are marching through the sea. It's dark, there's, there's flashes of lightning and there's a silhouette of a whale right beside them. And they're walking through these, this deep, dark valley with these skyscrapers, walls of water either side of them. And as the Israelites are making their way across, they're almost at the other side and the Egyptians are let in and they start charging through all that pent-up frustration they've had, not being able to get through, now let loose. And the chariots are there. They're heading down into that valley as well. And Yahweh throws them in to confuse them. Their wheels get jammed uh, from the chariots and the Egyptians panic. And they realize that the Yahweh, who was in Egypt, who fought against Pharaoh, is here right now fighting with the Israelites once again. Moses told to put up his hand again in verse 27. The Egyptians were fleeing toward it, and the Lord Yahweh swept them into the sea. The water flowed back and covered the chariots and horsemen, the entire army of Pharaoh that followed the Israelites into the sea. Not one of them survived. Of the end of that verse there, as if it wasn't obvious enough, they all drowned. Not one of them survived. Put yourself in the shoes of the Israelites, watching that happen, this great army. Well, once great army. How would you perhaps have responded if you were them? Well, look at how the Israelites respond in uh, verse 31. And when the Israelites saw the mighty hand of Yahweh displayed against the Egyptians, the people feared Yahweh and put their trust in him and in Moses, his servant. 
I mean, wouldn't you do that in that situation as well? Such, such power, such might, such control. I think fear is the right response. Fear in the sense of reverent awe of who Yahweh is because of what he's done. Sometimes we can be tempted to, to view God as like a, a, a cosmic Siri or a cosmic Alexa. We put our, our requests into him and he does them. And sometimes we think he perhaps mishears us and does things, does things wrong or does them differently to what we want. And sometimes we get annoyed by that. Just like Siri on your phone. Instead, what we are reminded of here is God is far greater than that. Yahweh is not to be messed around with. He is a warrior who fights for his people, and there is no warrior like him. This is how the Israelites sing about Yahweh after this in the next chapter. They go on and they sing in celebration at the victory that Yahweh has won. Just like after we hear God's word, we sing in celebration of who he is, responding to him. Just like at Twickenham yesterday, if the stands had been filled, the Scotland fans would have been singing there as well in celebration. So the people here sing in response to what God has done. But look at what they say about him. Have a look at verse 3 of chapter 15. Yahweh is a warrior. Yahweh is his name. This is what they're singing. See, to go against God, it's a, it's a terrifying thing. This is not a God, is it, we read here, that we want to be against. But God isn't some heavenly ogre. These Egyptians here weren't innocent bystanders. See, he wants us to be on his side. We are the ones who left him, who rejected him, who went against him. And he wants to fight for us, not against us. That's why the Lord Jesus hasn't returned yet. But the only way that can happen for him to fight for us is by trusting in Jesus. I love the book of Exodus. I think it's an, it's an epic story in, in the truest sense of the word, especially this episode we see here. I can see why so many films are based upon it. In reality, this true story that we read of here, it points towards a greater reality. A rescue story not just for Israel, but a rescue story for everybody who puts their trust in Jesus. See, Jesus is the God of Exodus 14. He is Yahweh. You read John's gospel and he says that he is the I am. I am the, the I am who I am. I am Yahweh, he is the God of the Exodus. And then he goes and crosses a lake, not by parting it, but by walking across the water. And goes on to do other Exodus-type miracles as well. See, Jesus came not to save us from getting wet. He didn't come to save us from an Egyptian army. Jesus came to rescue us from Death caused by our sin. He came to defeat Satan, sin, and death and lead us on a new exodus to be with him forever. 
But to do so, God's anger still had to go on someone. There is still this tsunami of God's wrath waiting. But as one poet writes, we are spared the burning flood only by the blood. Only by Jesus taking the punishment that we deserve on the cross can we be saved. It's as if Jesus stands in the middle of a parted sea of God's judgment and we can pass through safe to our heavenly home because on him fell the full ferocity of those waves of judgment as they crashed down upon him on the cross. See, what we're reminded of in Exodus 14 is that if you come to Jesus, he will fight for you. He will fight for you so that your greatest problem in life is dealt with. Not so that life will be easy for you now, but so that your greatest problem in life will be dealt with. Your problems right now could be monumental. I have no idea what almost all of you are going through right now. You could be going through a pain so great that you didn't know it was possible to hurt this much. You could be in a depression so dark you can't remember what it's like to feel any other way. But we need to be reminded that no matter how great our problems are right now, and they could be awful, they are nothing compared to the problem of our sin against the holy God. And Jesus has fought for your salvation. He fought for you up until the point it cost him his life. What we see here is that the Red Sea was the means that God used to save his people and to defeat his enemy, Egypt. And it's the same with us on the cross also, isn't it? By the cross, we are saved. And at the cross, our enemies of Satan, sin and death are defeated. Let me read for us from what Paul says in Colossians chapter 2 from verse 13, where we see this happening when he talks about this. He says, when you were dead in your sins and in the uncircumcision of your flesh... God made you alive with Christ. He forgave us all our sins, having cancelled the charge of our legal indebtedness, which stood against us and condemned us. He has taken it away. How? Nailing it to the cross. And having disarmed the powers and authorities, that's Satan and his workers, he made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them by the cross. Let's go back to where the Israelites found themselves towards the start of this passage. Down a road that they didn't expect God to lead them down. When God leads you down roads that cause you to fear, that cause you to doubt him, whether that's the, the pain of physical or relational strife, the darkness of mental anguish, the the fear of having to sell your belongings to pay bills because you lost your job. You, You may never know why God led you there. We do not know the answer why, but we do know who. When we are filled with fear, with what lies ahead of us, with what we can see, we need to look to the God who is always with us by his Holy Spirit. And remember that he gave up 
everything to have you. So he will never forget you. He will never give you up. He is always with you. And for some of us, we do that transition more more instinctively when we begin to, to doubt God and looking up. Think of the Israelites walking through the Red Sea. No doubt some of them saw what Yahweh was doing, part of the sea, and they marched through going, yes, come on, Yahweh, you've got this. Let's get to the other side. But no doubt some of them were walking through terrified, terrified of the walls of water crashing down on top of them. They just wanted to, to get through as quickly as possible. But both of them were saved. See, their salvation wasn't dependent on how they felt, but on the God who was saving them, the God who fought for them. Brothers and sisters, we live in long, dark days. Do not be afraid. Keep looking to Jesus. Keep looking to what he did for you on the cross. Spur one another on and encourage each other to do that. And when you fear your faith will fail, Christ will hold you fast. Let me pray. Our Father, we thank you. Thank you for the cross. Thank you that Jesus Christ fought for us, died for us, that we can be with you. And you will be with us. Father, to those who are particularly hurting this morning, may they know your love and comfort. For those in darkness, may they know your light. Help us all to take our eyes off ourselves, to curl out from ourselves, to take our eyes upon what lies in front of us instead. Not so much to ignore the question why, but to go quickly to the question who. We know the one who reigns. We know the one who loves us. We know the one who died for us. We know the one who is with us. We know the one who will keep us safe even through the valley of the shadow of death itself. No doubt that's what the Israelites felt like going through the Red Sea. But you kept them safe through to the other side. And so you will do the same with us. For you are our shepherd. You guide us, you lead us, you love us, you care for us. May all glory go to you. Amen.